You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with multifamily owner and operator, Steve Breton, to talk about passive real estate investing through apartment syndications. Steve is a seasoned real estate professional who coaches both active and passive investors. He is the founder of Velocity Capital and specializes in large apartment communities and has over 1,300 units to date. Let's dive right into today's episode with Steve Breton. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Steve Breton. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me, Robert. I'm a huge fan of the Investors Podcast Network and thrilled. When you launched this REI show, I was like, I've got to get on that show. So I'm really happy to be here today. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Let's start our conversation by talking about your story. Walk us through your background and how you got to where you are today. So in um, 2011, I had been working, you know, I had this great IT career working in a biotech company, heading up most of their IT, everything out, out of the uh, US. So all the international systems and things were going great. And then we were bought out by a much larger company and they came in and they were like, it's time for Steve to start laying people off and for him to start dismantling the systems that we had put in place over years. So everything started to change. It was a totally different company, much more bureaucracy, et cetera. And at that time is when I started to think, okay, I really need to look at investing in some different assets. You know, that was not too far after 2008 as well. So I was worried about my retirement anyway, because my, my uh, 401k had gotten slaughtered. And now I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to have a job to get me to retirement. So all those things started swirling in the brain. And I thought, okay, start looking at hard assets, led to real estate. And I started buying uh, small apartment properties in the Boston area at that time. I mean, there's a lot of different things you could have invested in. Why specifically real estate? I did invest a little bit in gold, but that's kind of like digging a hole and throwing your money in the ground because it was just sitting there. So I really wanted the cash flow after I bought that first one. And I heard a lot of stories. I think um, Bigger Pockets was just getting started at that, at that time. So I heard some of the stories on, on their podcast and seeing how people were accumulating cash flow so that they could leave their job. And I was like, well, maybe I'm not going to leave my job in the first two, three years or whatever, but it's certainly by the time I get to retirement age, I'll have plenty of income to augment whatever social security may be available at that time. So that's really, it was all about cash flow. Why'd you decide to get out of the investing in active strategies of real estate investing and become a passive investor through apartment syndications? So I did this active stuff. I got to 16 units. I was coaching my kids' soccer teams and I had this hour commute to work and there's just so much going on at 16 units and I was self-managing because prices were a little bit expensive here. So management would just kind of wipe out the cash flow. So after a while, I realized I can't continue to grow it this way. And a friend of mine introduced me to a syndicator and I had no idea. I'd never even heard of such a thing. And I gave him, I think it was $50,000 as an investment into one of the properties that they were investing in. And it started to cash flow right away. And I was thinking to myself, well, this is a heck of a lot easier than self-managing for roughly the same returns. And so I just, from that moment on, I just kind of started to plow all of our savings into different syndications with different syndicators, different properties around the country. So I was diversifying across the managers, across the geography, and in different classes as well. 
For those who aren't familiar with apartment syndications, what exactly are they? So you know, investing, like I started, it was you know, investing in small properties on my own. And then as you get larger, you want to go into bigger properties, you may do a joint venture so that like the two of us could both get together and take down a property that way. But eventually you get to the point where you're, you know, you're looking at 100 units, 200 units. That's millions of dollars for down payment. So what we do is we pool together equity from a bunch of investors. And that equity coming together is basically a syndication. Now, I know that not everyone is legally able to invest in real estate syndications according to the SEC rules. What does it take for someone to be allowed to invest in these types of deals? So the SEC has two different rules that we generally do our syndications under. One is 506B, and that that allows non-accredited and I'll get into the definition of a credit in a moment. So the, that's it. Pretty much, it's you know anyone who has income and the wherewithal to make a decision around you know financially making decisions. So you have to have a, a bit of a relationship with them and understand is this person do they understand the real estate concepts at a high level at least? Have they managed their finances well? Can they make a proper decision here, or do it? Or do they have a financial advisor who can advise them? So that's a f- sophisticated investor. Then there's a 506C, which is the different rule, and that's only for accredited investors. And an accredited investor means you have to have $200,000 in income for each of the last two years, and that can be combined with a spouse. And then the net worth of that individual has to be at least a million dollars, excluding the value of their home. So those are the two difference of 506B and 506C. If you qualify as accredited, it's very simple. If you qualify as sophisticated, there's real no hard test on that. It's really develop a relationship with the sponsor and the sponsor can then decide whether this person knows enough or you know is, is really competent to make this decision. Have you found that most apartment syndicators, and you could talk about your experience investing passively, but also now that you've become a GP, which we'll talk about in just a minute, but do most syndicators go one way over the other? Do they choose a you know the C option or the B option over the other? So I have found that even when I was invested, I was accredited already when I started investing. So I never really even paid attention. A lot of the people I invested with were um, creating the 506C. And uh, there were definitely a handful of folks doing 506B as well. So I you know, probably had a mixed bag, maybe maybe even half and half. Today with multifamily, there's a lot more people doing it. And I think as people are getting started, it makes more sense to try to raise capital from friends and family. And not all of their friends and family are accredited. So they want to be able to include their parents or their brothers or siblings, neighbors. So they'll go ahead with that 506B, taking in the sophisticated investors to get started. Maybe after a while, they have a a large enough investor pool that they can start going 506C. And the reason they would do that is the benefit of going 506C is that you can then advertise. And so on the 506B, you cannot advertise? With a 506B, you can't say anything about the fact that you have a property that you're, you're about to go to market and give people an opportunity to invest with you. You pretty much can't say a whole lot on even on Facebook about, I have a company that does investments. And if you'd like to invest with me, come talk to me. Even if it's not about a deal specifically, you can't say much at all because that would be sort of a... It's, um, I think they call it conditioning the market, sort of a general solicitation. The SEC doesn't want us out there advertising what we do if we're going to be doing 506B offerings and having sophisticated people come and invest with us. But if you go to a 506C, then the SEC believes, well, those people that that you'd be attracting who are allowed to invest with you are uh, generally going to be more sophisticated solely because they have more money. And that rule doesn't always make sense to me, but that's, that's how it's currently written. 
So for someone who might be going after that 506B and can't advertise it, how are they supposed to go about getting that information out to people that can actually invest in the deal? That's what we call friends and family. It's literally you know having coffee with your friends, talking to your family, and getting them interested in what you're doing in general, so that when you do have a deal that you know they could potentially invest in, they've already had those conversations. You've got that strong relationship with them, and you're able to just say, "I have this deal." But it's again, it's you're not saying it on Facebook or on Twitter or on a podcast. You're literally having a conversation with family. Yeah, so you can't even put that on Facebook, even if it's just friends and family. You have to actually go and sit down with them. Exactly. Yeah, because somebody else could see that on Facebook, and then that would be seen as a general solicitation. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you've invested in 1,100 units as an LP, which is the limited partner, and then you've done over 1,200 units as a GP, which is the general partner. What is the difference between an LP and a GP? So as a limited partner, those first investments that I made when somebody introduced me to a syndicator, it was literally me trusting somebody else and saying, here's $50,000. I like the business plan on your property. Although I didn't really know that much at the time, but it seems like it made sense. I had the wherewithal to make that decision. So I went ahead and invested with them. And then I was completely hands-off, 100% passive. And the check started coming to the mailbox and eventually they sold the property. We made a nice gain at the, at the sale as well. And I was hooked. And I just kept investing that way as a limited partner. Eventually, got to the point where I figured I can probably do this as a general partner as well. I tested the model on a small you know, six units uh, apartment building with uh, just a couple of investors. It was more like, like a joint venture, but I treated it as though I was doing a syndication. I just didn't have to do all the documentation and everything. But I tested that, that process, did a value add. We sold it, had a great return again. And then I was really charged up and I said, okay, I'm going to go do this with much larger uh, properties. But at that point, I am the sponsor. I'm responsible for everything, making sure that I'm handling their money properly. I now have a financial fiduciary responsibility. So it, it becomes a lot more serious and you have to take it very seriously. That's people's uh, well-being that you're messing with if things don't go well. Yeah. I mean, it's a very serious thing, like you said. And going from an LP to a GP is a really big jump. It's a really big difference. So how did you know that you were ready to make that change? So I probably oversimplified a little. I did that the six unit and it went fantastic. And then I started looking at larger properties and looking out of state for those larger properties. So now it's going to be working at a distance. And it just the complexity is, is orders of magnitude greater. And at that point, I decided I was going to get coaching. So I actually signed up for a coach, spent you know several months in a coaching program, practicing my underwriting, running you know all the deals that I was looking at by someone who's really good at underwriting to make sure that I understood what I was doing. And then I also knew that I had that backstop now that I can go to them even when I'm doing an actual deal and they can walk me through all the steps and make sure that everything's good. And if I happen to have a misstep, I also have that backstop to help me get out of whatever trouble I might be in. So once you made that jump to being the GP and outside of a 506B. So let's let's talk about a 506C deal. How were you able to find those investors? They're not friends and family. So how did you go out there and actually get those investors to invest in your first large syndication? So you're coming out of that coaching program, I started to you know, make offers and was, it was still struggling because the brokers don't take you that seriously when you're first starting either. So it's hard to get good deals. And this will lead directly into your question. I decided to uh, try to partner up with somebody who's more experienced than I am. 
Because I was also concerned that maybe my friends and family are going to look at me and say, well, you're used to doing you know, three family, six family, what, what is this hundred and something units you're going to buy? How do we know you're going to be okay with this? So I found somebody who actually lives in Texas. We started talking quite a bit over, over the course of several months. And eventually we found a property together and the two of us worked on it together. But he had done several of these already. So I was able to lean on his experience a bit. So that helped me in order to, you know, to find the right property and also to get friends and family and their friends. You know, some of their friends were interested because of word of mouth or whatever. And we ended up doing that, that deal together and uh, worked out really well. Beyond that, now it's more like I'm at a meetup and we're just talking about real estate in general. People find out that I'm a syndicator. They want to be added to my list or they want to have coffee just to learn more about it. And uh, you know, then they'll They'll kind of watch my progress as I send out emails and updates, and eventually they'll invest. As you start getting into large real estate syndications, you start to compete with private equity firms and just other really large players in the real estate space, like Grant Cardone, for example. How right. does this impact the returns of syndication deals? What are some of the average returns you'll see as an LP for a typical real estate syndication? So I'll take the second part of that first. So the typical returns for syndications, and this has been true for me since I started investing in, in syndications in 2013, I've averaged somewhere between 16 and 18% average annual return. So that's taking all the cash flows for the, for the period, you know, the whole period, as well as the gains on the, on the back end when we sell. So as an LP and as a GP, it's been in that 16 to 18 average annual or something like a 15 to 16 IRR. So the GP is earning the same type of return as the LPs in your deals? No. So that's just the LP. So on the GP side, I can't even say it or state it as a percentage return because you're working. So it's not simply like we put in money and then you get a return on that money. If you were just looking at it that way, it's actually fairly high return, much higher than the LPs. But in fact, we are working you know, 30, 40 hours a week, not specifically at one given property, but it's a lot of work to manage these things and to keep it going. So I, you know, depending on the deal, we're you know, trying to earn a living. So it's, uh, it's really just trading your time for, for dollars, I guess. And is the GP return so much higher also because it's off a smaller base? Are the GPs not putting in as much money to the deals as the LPs? Yeah. So I mean, I typically put in at least the minimum and sometimes more than that. So I like to put in as much as my largest investor, if I can. Sometimes I've got a couple of large investors that I could never match. But for the most part, I'm, I'm trying to put in around that same amount. But yeah, it's really because of all the additional effort that we have. right? And we have the carried interest. Like Let's say we do a 70-30 split. So we're getting this carried interest of when we sell the property, there's a lot of gain at the back end. And we'll split that 70-30. So it's sort of disproportionate return given how much we've put in compared to how much the LPs put in. Again, that's that's our reward for having done a good job of managing that property. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are some of the downsides of real estate syndications? Everything we've talked about so far seems to be you know great for the, those types of deals, but what are some of the cons about just real estate syndications in general? I think you know, a lot of people go into syndications and, and I was no different on my first few. They hear a good story. They see some nice pictures. They see pretty high returns. You know, almost looks like it's a fantastic return compared to the stock market in general. Although the last few years, the stock market's been on a tear. So they just look at that and they say, okay, I'm in, sign me up. But they don't really understand what they're getting into. I don't know that there's enough education out there. And in the end, if they didn't do a really good job of vetting that sponsor business plan and knowing how to do that 
quite a task. Like you really have to be fairly educated. So without all of that, I think people can get hurt. And, and particularly with the market the way it is now, it's you know the deals are getting tighter and tighter. People are probably overpaying. And at some point, the market's going to turn and some of those deals are going to go sour. So that, that stuff makes me nervous. That's probably the biggest downside. So as an LP, how do you find a good GP to trust with your money? And then to take it even further, how do you find or how do you analyze a deal to understand that it might be able to weather the next downturn that we have coming? How can you potentially hedge your risk or analyze a deal to see what your risks are as the LP? I love that question because I spend time at meetups talking specifically about this. I'll, I'll present on how to vet a sponsor and their deals. And at a super high level, it's always you know, sponsors first because the, the person behind the deal to me is far more than, important than anything else. So you have to look at their experience. What kind of caliber of person is this in general? Ethically, morality, everything. So I'm, I'm looking through their Facebook, their LinkedIn, just trying to get a sense of like, what's this person about? And then of course, having multiple calls with them, asking for references. I'll end up doing a background check eventually if I'm very serious about investing with a person. And uh, at some point I say, okay, probably going to be okay investing with this person. Now let's look at the market they're investing in. So if they're investing in Cleveland, Ohio versus Phoenix, Arizona, I'm looking at population growth, job growth, uh, what's driving that growth, et cetera. And you'll notice that you know most of the Ohio markets, probably except for Columbus in terms of larger markets, they're all going downhill. They're losing population, losing jobs. That's kind of a tide that I don't want to be fighting. So even as an LP, I don't, I don't want to have my money tied up in a market where things are going downhill. And even it's a, if it's a great general partner that, that's kind of running the deal, the sponsor, they're going to be fighting that tide as well. And even if they do everything correctly, we might, we might get what they suggested we would get in pro forma, or we're going to underperform. So I'll look at that market. And if it's a market like San Antonio, Tampa, Phoenix, where the growth trajectories are uh, unbelievably high at the moment, and they've been like that for a while, we're probably going to be outperforming, even if the sponsor only does what they said they were going to do. Right. So those those two things in terms of the sponsor and market are huge for me. Then I'll dive deeply into the actual dynamics of the deal itself. What are they using for cap rates for the exit cap, which makes a big difference on the sale price? And we can talk for hours just on those two things. What are they doing for financing? How aggressively are they pushing rents? Did they really do rent comps? So you know, I'm just kind of asking all these questions to see how they respond, how confident they are about their responses. So I can get a really good sense of, did they really do their homework? So it sounds like if you're going to be asking these types of questions and really vetting a GP, that you're going to have to know your stuff too before you start investing in these deals. So what level of competency does an investor need to have in order to invest in these types of deals and really you know, understand what's going into it rather than just throwing money at it blind and not understanding what they're putting their money in? That's a good question. You know, I gained some of this knowledge over time as I talked to my, the sponsor for my second deal, my third deal, my fourth deal. I would learn a little bit more each time because they would just share, oh, here's what we've done in our underwriting. Here's what we did for rental comps. So I would start to get a sense of that. And then I'd ask better questions on the next one. But that could be an expensive way to learn because those first couple of deals might not go well. So you know, again, there's a fair amount of people that are doing this today and it's a small world. So certainly asking everybody about the, the sponsor at that level. And that is maybe one of the easier things to do. Market analysis, super easy, right? You just type in you know, Cincinnati, Ohio and population or Cincinnati, Ohio job growth, and you'll see the charts. I and mean, that stuff is pretty simple to find. When it comes down to analyzing the deal, that's a lot more effort. And, and that's something that I didn't really 
understand well until I started getting into coaching and, and understanding how to underwrite myself and some of the tricks that sponsors will use to try to you know, make a deal a deal. So they'll split it differently. They'll offer a preferred return. They'll juice up the, the rent growth maybe more than they need to. So you start to see what works and what doesn't work in that way. And then I actually show my friends what I know, right? So I'll be at these meetups and I'll spend 45 minutes in front of the room talking about just how do you do that deep dive? What are the questions you ought to be asking a sponsor? I should probably post this on my website actually so that people can use it against me. <laughs> so for someone who's listening to the show that wants to get started in real estate, would you recommend that they start with their own properties, being an active investor, whether it be single family or small multi, or should they save their money and just passively invest in other people's deals? It depends on so many things. So the person themselves, if they're somebody who's who's willing to roll up their sleeves and, and get into a property and maybe do a little bit of self-management or deal with tenants or whatever, you know, it's not a bad thing for them to do. I'm really happy that I did it, that I was self-managing, even if I had put it under a property management company, but I still owned it myself. I did the deal myself. There's certainly some things you're going to learn there. I wouldn't do it if you're in a market where it doesn't make sense. So just for the sake of saying, I, I did it, I can check the box, I learned something. If it's not a good deal, you shouldn't be doing it. And I would highly recommend doing it in, the, in a market that's near you in terms of you know, your first deal that you do. So while it's a good learning experience, it's also generally not going to make a whole lot more than, than you make in syndications if you pick you know, the right sponsor, right deal. So you know, I'm kind of torn about, was it really worth for me to spend all that time? For me in the end, it was because I ended up being a sponsor and, and knowing what I know now from all that experience is super helpful. But unless somebody's going to actually go down that sponsor path at some time, I don't think that it's necessarily a requirement to be a good passive investor in syndications to have done something on your own. If someone's built a small portfolio of active rentals that they manage or have bought themselves, when is it right for them to take it to the next level and become a GP in a syndication? For some people, the answer is probably never. <laughs> Again, it, it, so much of it is, is um, you know, dependent on what's that person's background. Were they involved in financial management, project management? You know, what sort of work do they do in their, their work life, their W-2 job? And does that directly translate? And it doesn't have to be that they worked in you know, as a CPA. They could just be construction guy building houses, but he runs all the numbers himself. And he's always done fairly well on those projects, right? And you can ask for that history. Those guys actually tend to have all the numbers right in their head. And you ask them a question and they snap to it far better than CPAs would or some of the financial guys that I've seen in companies I worked in. So you, you, know, you can't judge the book by, by its cover. But having that background and understanding what this model is about and how it works, I think some people get there much faster than others and some people won't ever be there and others get there when they're 20 years old. So we've spent a lot of time so far talking about where you are currently and apartment syndications in general. Let's go back and talk about when you first got started. What was your first deal? What did that look like? So I had analysis paralysis, staring at spreadsheets for days on end, or well, it was really months in the end, but it was like days for each property. And then finally, I'd say, okay, I'm going to go look at this property. I think it might work. And then it wouldn't work out or I didn't get the deal. Eventually, I got a triplex under contract and I was totally petrified. Even though I had done all this research, I actually knew what I was doing. I just hadn't done it yet. So I, you know, I had to take that leap of faith, got under contract, closed on it, went and did a little bit of renovations. I have the curse of being a little bit handy. So I ended up doing a lot of the stuff myself. And then you know, found leases through friends who, are, who had properties. 
and kind of copied those and, and just did whatever they told me to do, assuming that they knew what they were doing. Before I got into real estate, one of my limiting beliefs was that I couldn't become an investor because I wasn't handy. I can't swing a hammer. I can't really fix things. I'm not that great at it. And so I didn't think I could become an investor. So that really limited me from getting started. Do you think somebody needs to be handy to become an investor? And let's not talk about the syndication side of things, but as an active individual investor, does somebody need to be handy to be a successful real estate investor? So it's a blessing and a curse. If you want to save a little bit of money and you have the time and you're going to go fix a faucet yourself or do a little bit of work around that property, that's great. The curse of it is if you are handy, you refuse to hire other people to do the work. And then you end up spending a lot of time and everything takes longer than you think it's going to take. And the job that you're going to do may or may not look as good as a professional. So in the end, you're much better off not being handy and just knowing it right out of the gate and letting the other people do the work. So find a couple of great contractors and it's not that hard, right? Just ask around and you know, have them meet you at the property, tell them what you want to have done and, and they'll do it. So I believe it's probably better not to be handy. Yeah, I might be a little biased because I'm not handy, but I tend to agree with that. I think I think if you are handy, you get you feel like you have to do it, and a lot of times you spend a you just spend a lot of time doing those types of things. Whereas you could be doing higher value tasks. So, like you said, right. maybe you can save some money on that on that renovation or that rehab or whatever the project is you have going on. But if you start to look at it through a different lens of how much money could I have made using that time doing other things, maybe finding another deal, finding you know other investors, networking, whatever it may be. The value of that might be two times what you spent or save on that rehab or renovation that you did. So it might not be even worth it. So, but if you're handy, it's almost like everything is a nail and you have to, you know, use your hammer to fix it. So it's one of those things. It's an interesting dynamic that I think sometimes it's, it's just better not to be able to be handy. I agree. I've actually sold off a good amount of my portfolio because of that. Yeah. And for me, I thought it was a big limiting, like I said, it was a big limiting belief I had at first, but then outside of just learning delegation skills, it's also taught me that I can invest long distance. So when I first started investing, actually, we live very close to each other. We've talked about this before the show. And so, you know, we live in an expensive market. It's hard, especially when you're just getting started. And I did one or two deals locally here. And then I decided I wanted to go long distance. I had done some research on it. I thought I could do it. And so I did. I bought a property in Texas. And if I thought that I had to fix everything myself, I might not have been willing or able to do that. But because I was able to learn those skills early on or or just not even have those skills in the first place, I was able to go and take my portfolio a different direction that has done very well for me. Agreed. If I hadn't invested as a limited partner first, I would have had a hard time making that leap. But because I made it as a limited partner, I had to completely let go. I had zero control over the property or anything that was going to happen. And I had to trust that the sponsor was going to take care of things. But then I learned a lot from those sponsors and, and how they manage things with good property management companies and realized that I don't have to actually do it all. So after that triplex that you bought, what was your next property? What did that look like? Within a couple of months, I was, I was actually on the beach in Florida with, uh, with my sister, brother-in-law, my wife. We're just, you know, we went away for a few days and my realtor called me and said, I have a deal. It's a fantastic one. We got to do it right now. And I said, I'm not going to be home for a few days. And he said, it couldn't wait. So he sent me the link with some pictures. I ended up doing pretty much the whole transaction sight unseen from the hotel fax machine, you know, signing documents and faxing them. So why did you decide to go straight into rentals? You mentioned you, you just mentioned that you did some fix and flips, but why didn't you start there? I think fix and flips attract a lot of new investors. I think that's kind of like the shiny object of real estate. And I think that's where a lot of real estate investors want to start. So how were you able right. to kind of go past that and start with the what they a lot of people consider the long-term strategy of buy and hold? 
I think I knew right out of the gate that fix and flip was a lot of work. It was going to take a lot of my time. And I had an hour commute. So I was, I was working actually in the city, but I live in the suburbs. And I knew that if I had a fix and flip project going, it would, or at least I thought that I'd have to be there often, right? I have to go in the morning, check things out, make sure that everything's good before I go into town. But my commute starts at you know six or 6.30 in the morning. Contractors aren't on the job yet. By the time I get home at night, they're already gone from the job. So like I would never have that overlap. And I was just worried about, again, because I'm handy, that I would have to be there all the time to manage things, make sure it's going well. So I had a hard time even conceiving of this concept of, of me being the guy running a fix and flip. Whereas buying a rental property seemed much more simple. I literally just put down a down payment, fill it up with tenants, and kind of runs itself at that point. With you mentioning that you're actually pretty handy, I would have expected you to have started with a flip. It seems like a lot of people that are handy tend to go that route and start with flips. You know, the other thing is I was already in my late 30s when I started. So, you know, at that point, I'm looking at do I really want to be running around and, and doing fix and flips or, or am I really just looking for a place to invest my money for cash flow? And I was really looking for cash flow at that point. And I think a lot of guys that do fix and flip, it is sexy, it does make money. And sometimes it's the younger guys who don't have. $100,000 for a down payment for a, a triplex in the Boston area. It seems like a, a lot of money. So if you don't have the money or if you have an abundance of time, then yeah, a fix and flip makes a lot more sense to start with. I guess I was lucky that I was able to just skip that right away and, and go into the, the multifamily until I found the triplex that I had to gut rehab. And then I was like, well, if I'm doing a gut rehab and I can manage that, it's no different than managing a fix and flip. So why not go down that path? So the contractor that I used for that gut rehab did a lot of, of fix and flip properties and he found a property and we, we figured out a way to kind of manage it together. And I trusted him to do everything. How are you funding your original deals? When you were first getting started, those first few deals, how are you funding them? I mean, you mentioned that you were mid-30s when you started and you were doing well in your corporate career. So I'm guessing it was probably just from savings, but was there anything else that you did? No, it was pretty much savings. So at, at the point where you know 2013, the market was coming back or had come back a fair amount. I think we were probably back to even from 08 at that point. And I just wanted out. So I literally started to sell everything that wasn't in my 401k. And I would take, you know, I'd sell $50,000, $100,000 worth of, of stocks and just put it all into a down payment on a property. Uh, I did that for you know for the first three, and then the cash flow from those properties over that time frame was enough that I was able to then you know come up with a, with a down payment enough for doing the next one. And at that time, we were also saving, and we still are, like half of our income. So I just you know we don't live fancy lives where we're not really taking fancy vacations or driving beautiful cars. For me, it's all about socking it away so I can get to the point where I am today, where I was able to retire before I turned fifty. Even though at that time I didn't quite think I could do it that early. I just wanted to be able to retire someday. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that you were a part of that coaching program. And so you probably had some mentors that way. But did you have any other mentors or anybody else that you leaned on throughout your real estate journey? And if so, how important was that for you? I get a lot of questions about mentors. It's super important. I had nobody at first. So when I did that triplex, I think I had just met somebody who had a couple of properties probably weeks before. But prior to that, I hadn't had anybody, hadn't met anybody, didn't have a mentor to help me kind of understand also. I literally just did a ton of research to figure it out. The realtor I was using actually had his own rental property. So I, I would highly recommend that for anybody who's looking for their local property. 
find a realtor who has rental properties because they'll help you with the analysis, hopefully. And so that that helped me a little bit. And then this person that I met just before my first deal, he helped me when it came time to like leasing it up and figuring out what leases look like and what they should have in there, some of the legal stuff. After that, I started to you know, run into a lot more people. Right? Once you're a property owner, people you know, talk and next thing you know, you're talking about properties. And it's really surprising the number of people who actually have them. Now, how about the flip side of things? You've done over what, 2,200 deals total now. So I'm sure that there's probably a lot of people that would love to pick your brain or just use you as a mentor to help them in their financial career, their investing career. What do you look for in someone as a mentee? So I I didn't mention earlier, but I'm actually coaching now with the coach that that I had hired. So now I'm I'm part of that group and, and coaching some folks. And I absolutely love it. And sometimes people come and they're just not ready. So you know they paid the money figuring, well, if I pay the money, it's kind of like a gym membership. If I paid $50 a month, then I'm more likely to go to the gym. So they thought if they would pay for coaching, they'd be more likely to actually go and take the, the necessary action to take down their first multifamily property. And that's not always the case. So what I'm looking for is somebody who has already tried. They've already fallen down a couple of times, picked themselves up, you know, dust themselves off, and they want to try again. And you know they've learned a few mistakes, they're resilient, and they're really ready to move. Those are the folks, you know, once you start to give them some mentorship, they're taking action and they're actually making things happen. And then that's fulfilling as a coach because you see that you know, you're not just wasting your time with somebody who's not really going to do what you're asking them to do or not follow the path that they ought to be following, which is going to be specific for everybody. But whatever it is that they ought to be doing, if they do it, then you're fulfilled as a coach and you want to keep coaching them. And I, I have done that for free for quite a few people as well friends or people that I meet at meetups, I'll help them get to that first duplex, you know, a couple of calls or coffee meetings or whatever. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is are you looking for the same types of things for someone who maybe isn't ready or just quite frankly can't afford to pay for a coaching class or a course or program like you're a part of now? Mm-hmm. Are you still looking for those same types of things that you just mentioned? Yeah, yeah, very much so. If I meet somebody at a meetup and they say, you know, I just want to buy a duplex and you know, I'm not sure where to start. I'm like, okay, let's have coffee and I'll tell you everything I know, you know, whatever I can tell you within an hour. It's literally going to be a brain dump. Bring your pencil and your pad of paper and I just tell them how to get started. Right? Here's you know, the 1% rule. Here's this, a few markets in this area that might work, but you want, you're going to want to stay away from the city or stay away from these expensive neighborhoods and just tell them why. Just trying to, to shorten that window for them where they can understand what they need to in order to get that first successful deal in a couple of months rather than a year or two. And I think a lot of people, specifically new investors, reach out to potential mentors in the wrong way. What would be the right way as a mentee to approach someone that you would like to be your mentor? So the wrong way being like, would you like to have coffee because I want to pick your brain, but not really offering anything or not really putting any context around what they're asking for. And then that was sort of the wrong way, right? And the right way is, what I like is somebody who comes to me and says, I'm, I'm trying to do X, Y, Z. I know you've have, you know, had experience in that area and they have a couple of specific questions. And then that's, that shows me they've already done some work because now they have specific questions that I'm able to answer more directly. And that tends to lead into more powerful conversations for them. And if that conversation goes well and I, and I continue to feel like they're learning and that they've done their homework and they're really ready to take action, then it's just easy to keep that conversation going. It's the people that come to you and have no idea what they're asking for. It's just so obvious that they haven't done anything for themselves yet. So if you're not willing to do it for yourself, you know, I can't do it for you. And I know where that's going to lead as soon as we have that conversation. 
yeah, if you're not willing to put in the effort and the time on the front end, then you're probably not going to be willing to put in the time and effort that it takes to actually get a deal, which means mm-hmm. that the mentor is essentially wasting their time, right? They can't help you, right? So the, what's the saying about you can't you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. I think one of the biggest mistakes mentees make when they want to be mentored is their ability to show that they're going to put in the work and actually do what the mentor says. Because I mean, ultimately, the mentor is giving you something for free. They're giving you their time, which is arguably their most valuable resource. And if they're going to be giving you your time, they need to see a return on that. And they're not necessarily expecting a monetary return, specifically in the real estate space. I've seen a lot of people that are willing to just you know, mentor people, give advice, help for free, but they do want to see a return on that. And that return is you going out there, be successful, doing what they're telling you to do. It feels really good to help people. So I'm happy to do it for free for some folks. You know, if it's a call or, or two, I'm not going to go through a whole coaching program. But it is a it's a value exchange, and the value I get is that it feels really good, and I love to see other people succeed and, and be able to follow their passion or their dreams as well. The other bit of you know, speaking of value, another good way for people to approach is just a lot of people will say generically, "How can I help you?" Right? I'd love to help you in your business because they know that it has to be a value exchange, but they just don't know how to help yet. And so to me, it's again, have you done the homework to understand what is helpful for somebody like me, somebody in my position? You know, what does that look like to be an owner of whatever, 12 units, 15 units in your local market, and you're trying to grow that? What sort of help would that person need? And if you can figure out how to help that person, then you approach them and you say, hey, I would like to be able to help you find off-market deals in this market or, or whatever it is that that person may need. You know, is that something that, that appeals to you rather than just saying, how can I help you? Again, it's just showing that you've done your homework. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And it's definitely something that I agree with. What have you found to be the most common reason holding people back from actually getting started investing in real estate? How can people overcome that? There's two huge factors. One is limiting beliefs. Everyone's got something in their head that tells them they're not good enough, they're not smart enough, whatever it is. The other is the perception of what will others think. And because there are a lot of real estate scams, I think there have been in the past. Some people tend to look at real estate and just think, well, that you're probably going to get scammed, probably going to lose your money. Leave that up to the experts or whatever that, you know, your advice that your friends are telling you because they don't want you to get hurt. It's not because they don't like you. They just don't want you to get hurt. So if you listen too much to that, you're never going to move. But then if you do move or if you, you start to go down the path where you, you may take the action, now you're afraid of, well, if I do fail, now I'm going to look like an idiot, right? Everybody's going to say, why did you do that? We told you not to do that. So it becomes this massive thing in your head of, what if I fail? And instead of looking at it and saying, well, what if everything went right? What would this look like? That in itself should be motivating enough. Yeah. And I think the biggest hurdle is just getting that first deal. And I talk about that here a lot on the show. And that's probably one of my biggest goals with the show is to really get people listening to the show today to get their first deal. Because in real estate, arguably more than anything else I've experienced is you do your first deal and then you do a lot of deals after that. It's very rare to meet someone who's only done one deal in real estate and then quit. Usually people I've talked to, they've done one deal and then they've gotten hooked. And then from there, it's not easy, but they've been hooked and they, and they continue to go on and they've done multiple deals from there. No, it's very appealing when, when you're in it and you see how well it's going, you can't help yourself but to go and do more. And that again is very telling for those who haven't done their first deal yet. They should be looking at that, as you say, and, and say, you know, if everybody's doing multiple deals, once they get one done, it's probably pretty good. And it's worth whatever effort and falling down and, and wipe myself off and going at it again, because eventually I'm going to get to the point where I'm doing multiple deals. And you also realize that it's not really as scary as you thought it was before you got started. For sure. 
that's another thing I, I when I'm coaching folks is to to have them look at it. Whatever problem or issue they might be having is look at it from the perspective of I already own ten properties and my friend is having this problem. What would I tell them? You probably think to yourself at that point, oh, that's a cute little problem. I remember when I had that. Right? It's really not a big deal. So you you got to just look at it from the perspective of I'm fully capable of taking down multiple deals, and this is just you know a very small hurdle in my way. What is a common piece of advice you often hear given by real estate experts that you don't necessarily agree with? And what do you think is the actual truth? That's a good question. So I want to say investing for, I don't know like if it's really advice, investing for appreciation rather than cash flow. That's a huge one for me. So one of the things I hear a lot is, especially in the Boston area, people are investing more for appreciation. They're like, you have to buy in South Boston, or you have to buy in East Boston, or, or this other neighborhood that's popping because the appreciation is going to be enormous. But when you run the numbers on those properties, they're literally negative cash flow. So you're going to be feeding that property on a monthly basis because of the rents don't cover your mortgage or cover all of your expenses in hopes that eventually you can sell that property at a profit. That might work at the very bottom of a market when the market's starting to heat up. I still don't like the idea. I really like to invest for cash flow. But if you're near the top of the market, like we suspect we are at this point, at some point that music stops and now you own a property that doesn't cash flow and you probably can't sell it for four or five years. So you know the reality is invest for cash flow. Don't listen to anybody who says to invest for just for appreciation. Yeah, I like that advice. I tend to be more conservative like that and I don't really really worry too too much about appreciation. I actually invest mostly in the Midwest and Texas where parts of Texas even where we're not going to see a ton of appreciation, but we're also not mm-hmm. going to see the volatility. We're not going to see huge roller coasters, right? And we have relatively stable cash flow. So that's what I'm looking for as well. I think that's great advice. I do invest in both, right? So my first criteria is it has to cash flow. But then I'm looking at how can I force appreciation by raising rents and improving the property, et cetera. I want that big pop on the back end. And you know, that's that's where syndicators tend to make most of their money is managing a property a property correctly, increasing the value of that property and making sure their investors are are taken care of and then they get to keep some profit on the back end. So the appreciation piece of it is is certainly important, but if the property doesn't cash flow, you're putting everyone at risk. Yeah, I mean it is one of the big four pillars of real estate and I think it is definitely important, but like you said, it can't be the only reason you're buying a deal. And it can't right. be the only thing that makes that thesis make sense. Steve, for those listening today that might have more questions about real estate syndications or how to get started, where can they go to connect with you, learn more about all the different things you have going on? They can go to my website. So the name of the company is Velocity Capital, and the website is velocitycap.com. Awesome. I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes so everybody can go connect with Steve there. I'll also put books related to the different topics that we talked about today in the show notes. You guys could go read up on those further if you're interested in diving into these topics further. Steve, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Robert. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.